It don't matter what I try I just can't win and I don't know why There's a fork in every road I pick the wrong one and then I go American loser, yes I am Disenfranchised from everything well, I fall up and I fall down An American loser the day I was born Welcome, folks, back to American Loser. It is a podcast that puts the spotlight firmly on second place. I think we're the only ones to do that in the business, Dad, because you know what it is? People like to just go on and have a podcast where they get to shoot the shit with their friends. And I'm jealous of them because we're writing too much, goddammit. Yeah, this takes research and, and book learning and all kinds of stuff that uh, that's just not fair. There's way too much edumacation. <laughs> really? <laughs> Got to be learning me some stuff here. <laughs> but you know what? The uh, the It winds up always being worthwhile here because the show is very interesting. We've covered a wide variety of topics. If you don't know what we do here on the show, we put the spotlight firmly on second place. We're here to illuminate you on some of the stuff where if you ever thought history was boring, particularly American history, I'm sorry to say you had bad teachers. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you missed the good stuff for sure. Repeal tenure. That's what I'm saying. It's a whole lot more than just uh, dates and places. Yeah, you got to list. Uh, you gotta, uh, essentially, American history, if presented correctly, can be the greatest series on Netflix you've ever witnessed. OK, so if you guys don't know what we do, that is what we do here. So uh, if it's a if you're a returning listener, thank you so much. If you're a founding loser over on our Patreon, where we're giving you guys a, a bonus exclusive episode. And again, we already kind of hinted what it's going to be over on our Patreon for just the cost of one large cold brew from Dunkin Donuts. You can join us and help support the show. Keep this bad boy rolling out there. Otherwise, one episode is just going to be my father clearing his throat into the microphone for an entire hour to punish you. <laughs> there you go. Some might enjoy that. But yeah, it is a, a father-son team over here. Of course, uh, the Dilf Larry Burke in the building. Say hello to the people. Hello, people. How are we doing today? It's your last episode from South Beach, I think. Yeah, we're going to be uh, doing the northbound shuffle on 95 pretty soon. Hey, 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 you'll be back in the great state of New Jersey, also known as the center of the universe, where behind the ones and twos from his uh, magical, mystical land of Oz, the big kahuna joins us. <laughs> we're, what's going on, guys? And also, it's not Oz this time. We're actually on Living Island from HR Puff and Stuff this week. <laughs> it's really fucking trippy here. See, we make these obscure uh, historical references, and kahuna never disappoints with a good pop culture one. So... <laughs> That's why it works, baby. But See, we gotta, that's what I love about this show, though, is that we get to like I get to do my thing with the references. You guys get to do the great historical figures like the great Christian Cordes. It's freaking <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Right. Uh, Christian Cordes, unfortunately, a lot like Columbus, used to be somebody we could be proud of. But the more we're learning, the more upsetting it gets. Yeah, it's, all, <laughs> it's about that fountain of youth thing with the Christian Cordes. I don't know. <laughs> Wasn't he one of those Spanish explorers? Uh, yes, a conquistador, as it was. There you uh, go. But we got a good one here for you guys. Uh, Kahuna, I'll, I'll pose it as a question, as I often do here. Uh, my dad and I are going to Mars, buddy. Okay, we're going to Mars. And uh, if you give us some money to help us pay for the trip, we will name some of the shit we find after you. Is that cool? I'm game with this. Okay. Well, if it sounds like an oversimplification, it is not. And it's basically exactly how today's loser will become world famous and etch his name into the American history books. 
uh, not even just American dad, right? This guy's kind of a uh, an international figure. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, world world famous, world famous in New Jersey, just like That's us. Right. So, um, but there's a little bit more than meets the eye with a, a guy by the name of uh, well, who we're going to refer to as the Good Admiral Bird today. And uh, Admiral Byrd is uh, thankfully, you know, we have a show that's dedicated to the obscure in history. So we're going to cover him in earnest today. All right. And uh, it's not Ernest goes to uh, the Antarctic or Ernest goes to camp. It's, you know, essentially uh, the other Ernest. Yeah. Admiral Byrd goes to uh, the Antarctic is what we're going to call. <laughs> so born the 25th of October, 1888. Richard Evelyn Bird, you know, he's going to have a little bit of a boy named Sue kind of thing going on there, where if you give a, a guy a, a female middle name, they're going to wind up having to accomplish something to make up for it. Yeah, especially when his first name is Richard. And what's the uh, what's the nickname for Richard? Well, Dick Bird. That's what this episode's <laughs> all about. I mean, that's what he that's what he preferred, actually, is to be known as uh, Dick rather than Richard. Not the uh, the first dick we've covered on this show. Okay. <laughs> In so many different ways. <laughs> very, very true, especially to uh, Demo Dick, the great Demo Dick Marcinko of SEAL Team 6 fame, who uh, currently on YouTube were approaching 20,000 listens on that. So that's kind of okay. cool. There you go. Very happy there. Hey. Someone please. Advertisers, do you hear this? Um, <laughs> Anyway, good uh, good Dick Bird or Richard Evelyn Bird, as he is formerly named, he is going to come from good old school Virginia stock. He's actually uh, one of the descendants of one of Virginia's first families, if you will. So we're talking like you know borderline uh, Mayflower type stuff going on. We're not exactly obviously because we're talking about Virginia versus uh, Massachusetts Bay, but I mean you get the gist. These people have been here for a yeah, hot the, minute. Yeah, the family's been around. They're not Johnny Come Latelys. No, this is what we would almost refer to as uh, old money. One might say. Uh, and he is a descendant, like we said, from one of the first families here. He will also famously attend uh, for a couple of years VMI, which is known as uh, Virginia Military Institute. Dad, any any professors of merit from such an institute as VMI, maybe names that jump out at you that might become a little bit more famous uh, later on in their career after they leave the profession of teaching? Uh, yeah, there was a guy that had a funny nickname by the name of Stonewall, uh, Stonewall Jackson. That uh, was a professor of uh, note of note from VMI. He, by the way, not a very popular professor. This comes from VMI's own uh, uh, records, if you will, that he was well liked by the students, but he was considered a poor teacher because he was so brilliant that he couldn't break down the concepts well. So it was, you know, my father's an educator, for those who don't know. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, sometimes he has to you break things down. You try to oversimplify them for me. And I'll still sit there and be like, I have no clue what you just said. <laughs> so, Got to dumb it down a little further. <laughs> well, that was Stonewall's problem there. But uh, again, they wouldn't have been uh, contemporaries, if you will, obviously no. based off the time frame here. But uh, good old Dick Bird, he's going to wind up in a, a, maybe a more prestigious sort of military academy. Dad, are you familiar with a little place uh, known as Annapolis? Yeah, he was uh, he was an Annapolis grad for sure. But he went from VMI uh, and then he went off for a short bit for uh, the University of Virginia and then ended up at the United States Naval Academy. Not a bad way to do things if you really got to play it that way. But uh, Dick Bird will graduate in 1912 and his career is going to take off on the high seas or he's going to get forced retired just four years later. Not exactly a glamorous uh, uh, initiation yeah. into the world of the military here, but so much for the military career, right? Well, he's got a way of uh, making a name for himself and keeping himself relevant at all times, as we're going to see. Because, uh, again, if we're saying he got forced retired from the military, 
uh, and we're on the first page of our notes, mm. I think something else is going to yeah, happen. Yeah, there's a little something else happening later, a little later in life. Not too much later. What was the reason he was forced retired? Well, I didn't really cover it just yet because it's a a combination of injuries that he sustained while in the academy and hilariously enough. So did this guy's name, uh, does he mean anything to you just off the top of your head? Because it might be the first time you're ever hearing of him, to be fair. KP, I swear to God, if this is going to be the origin of flipping the bird, I'm (laughs) going to be the happiest dude. Yeah. You got the bird and you got Dick all rolled into one. I mean, exactly. This, this is a package deal for you. <laughs> Unfortunately, here's what uh, I actually know some of the etymology, if you will, of where the middle finger came from. And uh, it's known, uh, it goes back to Roman times. The middle finger is known as the phallic finger because it, it, it resembles a penis because it's the long, you know, a, a member type thing. So <laughs> the longest digit See, that you might have. <laughs> I wasn't even talking about like the actual action of doing it. Just the term flipping the bird, I hope comes from this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that too. Yeah. But we digress with flipping the bird. Let's get back to uh, what would later become known as Admiral Bird, but well, as uh, as we were also saying, though, is that the reason why he does get forced retired, he has a couple of injuries. One of them is the legitimate old football injury from his time over at Annapolis. Another one is that uh, I shit you not, he hurt himself doing uh, gymnastics. So <laughs> picture Dick Bird doing the Vince Vaughn with a cigarette in his mouth on the uh, the gymnast rings in old school. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And then he botches the landing or something like that. So it's uh, he's got an ankle problem from that one. That That seems to be the one that holds him up the most. <laughs> yeah, what I found that he was a pretty good athlete. Um, actually, he was the quarterback for uh, for Annapolis, and that's where he sustained one of his uh, ankle injuries. He he screwed up his ankle a number of times, but um, it was while he was quarterbacking for the Annapolis, you know, for the Navy football team, that he uh, broke his ankle. And he again, now you're telling me that he's also hurt it uh, in gymnastics. So he was a pretty good athlete. Uh, he wasn't really an outstanding student, but a pretty decent athlete for sure. Where have I he heard that before? And he had a set of cojones for sure. But uh, sorry, cojones. Cojones. Cajones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little different, different nuance on that. Well, he's a pisser, man. And uh, again, as we're going to see uh, throughout his life, he's going to have a habit of making whatever time he does have count. So. While before he's forced retired, he is stationed uh, as an officer on board the USS Wyoming, which will have some uh, World War II fame here for you. But uh, he's on board the USS Wyoming and Bird would twice, not once, but twice, risk his own life by diving into the sea to rescue a sailor that had gone overboard. So you're falling overboard. You're, you know, a, a lot of people don't know this, too. I knew this uh, from just being trained uh, in the military for it. When you go overboard, it's not like, all right, stop the boat and everybody turn around. We're going to go get this yeah. guy. It's a two to three hour process. So you're going to be floating for a little while there. So good old Dick Bird is uh, he's an officer and, uh, you know, one of his enlisted guys went overboard. So he dove in not once, but two different times. He dove in after a guy that had gone overboard because I mean, you're going to get lonely out there after two to three hours and the water's a little bit cold and maybe your flotation device is it's OK, but it's not perfect. You know, so why not have somebody out there to talk with while the giant ship is turning around? <laughs> but brutal stuff on that one, man. And uh, as again, so that's the USS Wyoming over here. And he does get uh, some a little bit of notoriety for him, too. He gets a couple of letters of commendation. So he's got a little bit of a naval career going on here. He's making an officer and a gentleman. One might call him dead. There you go. So, but uh, 
Dick Bird will then get assigned to a most peculiar position aboard a ship known as the USS Dolphin. You know anything about the Dolphin, Dad? It's not really what you're thinking of as a uh, a badass. It's not like the USS Shark or uh, Killer Whale or something. The Dolphin is uh, not exactly uh, striking fear in the hearts of your uh, enemies. And it wasn't intended to either, I think, because it was no. almost a, a funny name for it. Uh, essentially, how I read it was that it was more so treated as a uh, a yacht more than anything else. So this is the USS Dolphin, which is essentially like, oh, you're on yacht duty. You know, go hang out and, you know, uh, go hang out in Cape Cod with the boys kind of a thing. So uh, anyway, while he's on board over there, he is because it's a yacht and you're meeting a lot of dignitaries and high ranking members of the American military and government. Uh, he's going to take his time while on board there. Bird will meet an enthusiastic young man who is then serving as the assistant secretary of the Navy. Uh, Cahoon, you want to take a wild guess as to who this guy is? Not even, like I, I wouldn't even know. We had some other, uh, we had some other interesting assistant secretaries to the Navy, but this isn't the one. It has the same last name, but <laughs> Wait, go ahead, JP. Well, throw it out there. A former assistant secretary of the Navy. This, this position is held by cousins, right? Uh, both, both are cousins who are related to one of them. The, uh, the older one. Let's just say you don't fuck with them. No, are you kidding? <laughs> So, yeah, the assistant Roosevelt. Yep. Teddy was the original here. But at the time that Bird is serving on board uh, the USS Dolphin, he's actually going to become friendly with the current assistant secretary of the Navy, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Wow. Okay, Teddy's cuz. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I just pictured um, you just called him uh, uh, Teddy's cuz, but you almost from in my head almost heard like cousin Eddie. So I just pictured FDR shitting on Teddy's front lawn in uh, Christmas vacation. (laughs) But uh, due to injuries suffered back during his time in the academy, like we talked about between football and gymnastics, Bird is against his will, force retired in 1916. But the good news is he'd made enough friends and developed enough of a strong reputation during his time in the military that he's able to stay within what we, I guess, would call. I think this is fair to say, right, that call like the military industrial complex that he's a civilian, but he's working with the military. Yeah, he's. He's made some contacts while he was in the military, that's for sure. So that, you know, he's a, uh, an, a an academy trained uh, um, officer. So that's got some value to it right there. That's got some cred. And he was forced to retire, not because of anything, you know, not because of conduct or any uh, misdeed. It was, it was a physical uh, thing that he couldn't, he could no longer meet the physical requirements of the, of the Navy because of all the, uh, He's now got weak ankles from being broken so many times. Well, it's uh, unfortunate, too, because that was the thing that always would make me laugh about uh, the military is that they would say, uh, say, if you were a guy like me, uh, a thick neck, broad shouldered guy, they'd give you a hard time sometimes about uh, your weight, making sure that your body fat, your BMI was a, a certain percentage. So they'd say, oh, Burke, you know, you're uh, you're a little bit heavy here. Uh, this go around, you're gonna have to lose some weight or something like that. Meanwhile, there's a kid who's like, you know, uh, 98 pounds soaking wet, who's Kevlar uh, can you know drop him. If he leans back too right. far, and they're like, "Ah, but he's all right. That guy's going to be all right." So, right. The Kevlar is heavier than the man, so <laughs> yeah. This guy's an athlete, and they're telling him he's not physically fit enough uh, to continue to serve in the military. A little bit of a, you know, that's a question mark or two. Yeah. But uh, anyway, he does get force retired. He's going to be up now in Rhode Island area, which that's a good place to be if you're going to be a man who's trying to make his living at sea. And uh, he's going to spend a little bit of time over there. Actually, uh, he gets uh, commended yet again for a lot of the things that he's implementing now as a civilian working within uh, you know, the military. 
to help cultivate the readiness for the U.S. Navy. As uh, things are getting a little bit interesting here, if you're uh, familiar with the timeline, guys, uh, Dad, he gets forced retired in 1916. Any idea what the U.S. is going to be doing just maybe, I don't know, a year later in 1917? Yeah, I think we're going to be sending the boys overseas once again for the for the Great War. Uh, for WW1, it's about to uh, get America involved with that in 1917. So a year later, you know, all of a sudden that they're they're looking for people. It's um, just a little scuffle. It's yeah, it's just a little dis- disagreement that uh, they're going to be calling. <laughs> they're going to be calling out their reserves. They're going to be calling out the retired guys to come back into active duty. And, and call it, is, uh, the war of uh, German aggression, if you talk to me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. German aggression. Well, boom, uh, that's a good way to get your naval career reactivated is to uh, be recalled to active duty. Welcome to the Great War, folks. And Bird will be serving in an in administrative role, administrative role for the chief of naval operations, also known as the CNO. So that was a big deal. If the CNO ever came around on your base, that was uh, you might as well be saying, hey, the president's on his way. That's the kind of rolling out of the red carpet that goes on for that guy. And Bird's working almost directly for him. So during this time, he's also going to become an expert in aerial navigation, aerial navigation. This would be one of the uh, the cliff notes right now. If you had to study and pass a test based off this episode Knowing aerial navigation is going to be key here. All right. He gets trained for that down in Florida, uh, which we actually have uh, most of our aviation guys do wind up spending some time over in the Pensacola area of Florida to this day. So that has not changed at all. Um, He's going to become an expert, like we say, in this field. He becomes a trained navigator for this new method of warfare, Dad, that's fast approaching. Kind of a a death from above is the mantra, if you will. Right. Because prior to this, we'd never seen a plane fight a boat. But we're about to see that in spades. Yeah, well, we're actually just, just to see a plane. I mean, again, the timeline, we're 19, 1916, 1917. Just to have airplanes going is uh, now for the first time we're going to have uh, planes overhead that now not only do you need an army, you need a Navy. Now you're going to have to have somebody up in the air, too. So, you know, Snoopy is on top of his doghouse fighting the Red Baron and uh, there's all kinds of stuff going on here right now. So you said that yeah. just for me. And I know yeah, absolutely. I it. Absolutely. And I appreciate being <laughs> <me> the smile. <laughs> it's not uh, too far off, though. Red Baron is going to be from that time frame, too, as well. And it's going crazy. We're starting to see this dog fighting thing going on here. We're starting to see, uh, like we said, planes. It, it follows that that trope, if you will, of. Uh, man creates something. And then the next, as soon as we create something, it turns into, all right, well, how can we sell that? And then it turns into, how can we use that to kill other people? And then the military comes and say, how can we make sure we have the controlling interest in this? Right. I mean, to take it to a timeline, 1907, we saw the Wright brothers with the first controlled manned flight in a heavier than air aircraft. And now, you know, Less than 10 years later, we got people up in the up in the skies dropping bombs on one another and shooting at one another with machine guns. So, uh, yeah, we, we definitely kicked it up a bunch of notches in a very short period of time. Uh, as, again, this is the first time, too, that we saw aircraft um, flying and landing on the, the deck of a ship. So, uh, you know, your first <laughs> aircraft carrier, if you want to call it that, that you have uh, this heavier than air aircraft landing on a naval ship. Well, what's next? Are you going to have a, an aircraft doing battle with a ship? So, you know, the, the, it's it's the opening salvo of uh, air warfare. Hi, I'm Johnny Knoxville, and this is a dogfight. 
<laughs> Crazy, man. They are nuts this way. It, it kind of blows my mind. It, it's a fun thing to even think about because uh, there's some other stuff later on in the story where we're going to start thinking about the modern uh, context for it, too, because keep in mind, it takes we always say history ships in really 30 year periods. That's when you can see something from an idea reach its uh, inception point to then becoming uh, something nobody's ever heard of to becoming every day to the point where we're almost bored with it. Uh, an example would be, I think we're like 30 years into everyone pretty much having internet access. So uh, 30 years ago, that was not the case. Now we have it. And we're just like, what do you mean there was a time without the internet? So there's a couple other examples for that that are going to come in here uh, later on. But uh, importantly, though, as we said, again, in his uh, aerial navigation, this uh, expertise that Bird now holds, that's going to allow him to begin to fulfill his destiny here. And some of you people might already know who Bird is and what he's most known for. But uh, this conclusion of the Great War here, there's Bird does not sit around. Okay, he really is a bird of some sort, almost like a hummingbird, where if he stops moving, he dies. I think that's a fair way to describe him. But yeah, uh, yeah, he's got to be he's got to be going all the time. And his uh, his love of uh, adventure and uh, exploration, if you will, really starts as a young age because I think he was only like thirteen or fourteen when the family allowed him to travel unaccompanied around the world to the Philippines to visit relatives in the Philippines. So again, coming from that old, uh, old Virginia family uh, upbringing, uh, he had the wherewithal to experience those types of things. So, you know, imagine being a 13 or a 14 year old kid and you're going to the Philippines for the first time. This is long before anybody's really had anything to do with an airplane. I mean, it wasn't, he didn't fly there, but just that whole idea of uh, that wanderlust, that uh, age of exploration, that, that, that wanting to see the world. And you, you're seeing that as a 14-year-old kid, like, holy cow, no, but most people haven't even gotten off the farm yet, much less going around the world. That's uh, uh, definitely, I mean, I shit, I have not seen the Philippines. So this kid's seen it uh, about 100 years before me and when he's 13. So that's kind of cool. But <laughs> Uh, this expertise, like we say, though, he's it's time to uh, time to etch your name into the history books here. He's he's a distinguished officer, but kind of just another officer for right now. And that's all going to change. Um, he originally wants to be on board one of the flights. It's going to be considered the first transatlantic flight that would be from U.S. to uh, the U.S. to Europe. So a major key here, by the way, is that it's not going to be one solid shot. It's going to be like, all right, so the planes are going to go down here. We'll refuel or something but it's the idea that we can go from uh, North America to Europe via plane. That's a big thing. So I believe it's going to be three seaplanes that are going to have to be used for this, where I, the pilot crews are going to change up. They're going to make sure they have people who, hey, well, I'm off for this leg of the journey here. And this navigator is going to chart out this path. But Bird actually is the guy who winds up creating the path for what does become, in fact, the first transatlantic flight from the U.S. to Europe. He's not allowed to be on the flight himself. Because they determined that in the Great War, he served overseas, which is hilarious. Because did you figure out where his um, his overseas location or uh, area of service was, Dad? I think it was uh, Greenland or something along those lines. Newfoundland. Okay. So, Newfoundland. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A Newfie. What was that, Cahoons? Newfoundland. Newfoundland. He's not yeah. wrong. That's kind of how they talk. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> But he's that's, that's Kahuna's uh, Swedish chef coming out there, though. The- he's born this baby. He's born this baby. There you go. <laughs> With the well, uh, unfortunately for uh, the, you know, 
the future Admiral Byrd, he's not allowed to get onto that flight because they said he served overseas and they agreed that the, uh, the crew members would be made of, of people who had not served overseas because I guess they didn't want the bad press of saying like, hey, this guy survived the Great War and then we killed him in this funny experiment we're running. <laughs> so they did not allow him on board for that flight, but the trip is a success. And that flight, by the way, Dad, is completed May 18th, 1919. Um Going to be a, a little something's going to show up in about a couple of years down the road here, Dad. That maybe makes that a completely forgettable detail. Is that fair to say? Well, yeah. I mean, there's again this uh, aviation is in its infancy, so everybody's trying to one up everybody else. And what's 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 next is uh, who's going to be the first to have a uh, transatlantic nonstop flight. But uh, you know, there's all kinds of competition from both sides of the ocean as to who's going to be the first. Um, oh, it's coming, baby. Yeah, it's coming. So uh, Dick Bird, like we said, he does volunteer uh, for that. He's not able to get on that. Now, the uh, after that successful uh, endeavor, though, he's still very much involved with the program and, uh, you know, tracking down these other couple of things here, uh, namely the next feat of strength for the U.S. Uh, and their need to get things across the Atlantic in a hurry because we're just realizing now, hey, America's a player in the game here. And unfortunately, we have to, uh, you know, we, we have the furthest commute to get involved in the affairs of Europe. And uh, we got to figure out a way to make that so it's not such an issue here. So, like you said, Dad, the next logical thing here, well, how do we make that trip nonstop? And can it be done with a single pilot? So, Dick Bird will again volunteer and have his hopes shot down by, we mentioned uh, uh, FDR earlier, right? Mm -hmm. We mentioned uh, Teddy, Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt himself earlier. Uh, this okay. time his hopes will be, <laughs> did you know that there was a T2, not judgment day T2 Teddy Roosevelt jr. Is actually the guy who winds up shooting down the idea of bird being involved with it and not, he doesn't even just shoot down bird being involved with the program. He shoots down the entire idea. He says, wow. Oh, I don't, I don't think that's worth the risk that we're going to be taking here. So, like he turns it down because of the risk assessment or because he just doesn't like bird or. Oh no, he, it was had nothing to do with bird. It was just, they said, I don't think this is worth uh, the, the risks do not. Uh, I'm sorry. The rewards do not outweigh the risks is kind of the, the theory that he had on this, which is hilarious because ironically, tragically hilarious, I should say, because uh, they didn't think it was safe. So they assigned bird to ZR2 dad. Any, uh, did you read a little bit about ZR2? I did not. You're going to have to uh, enlighten me on this one. Oh, boy, dude. Yeah, welcome to the, one of our first loser sections of the episode here, guys. Uh, ZR2 is a dirigible, okay, also known as kind of a Zeppelin, if you will. And uh, it's going to predate the Hindenburg. So if you want to check out our great loserception episode on the Hindenburg, of which did blow up in the great state of New Jersey because we're the center of the universe, um, my father does a masterful job of breaking down the whole lighter than air uh, phenomenon of uh, people don't realize this, but the Empire State Building originally was designed with that giant uh, pole at the top of it so that you could attach zeppelins to it as like a mooring station that imagine looking out your window yeah. and seeing the New York skyline with a bunch of fucking zeppelins just attached to it all over the place. Yeah. And I, they actually there's still uh, film footage out there that can show the uh, the zeppelin going around Manhattan and you can see the Empire State Building. The whole idea of that was to dock on the Empire State Building and then they could come down a, a long slender staircase to to where the elevator stopped and take you down to the <laughs> to the street they, level. They really thought Zeppelins were gonna pop off oh, not that literally. Was, but again, they really that, thought 
again, wow. this is really uh, aviation in its infancy here, that, that this lighter than air aircraft that you were going to be able to have a passenger service going across the Atlantic by via Zeppelin. You wouldn't have to do it with a, a steamship. You could, you know, be in the lap of luxury in a, in a dirigible and in a, in a gondola of a, dir, a dirigible or, or uh, yeah, a Zeppelin. <laughs> well, uh, interestingly enough, it is the wave of the future here. The skies are where you need to be. The dirigible is just not the thing that's going to get you where you're trying to go for a long period of time. There is a, a length of period where it is hot, though. So I'll make a comparison for pop culture reference uh, alone here that I would say uh, Zeppelins and dirigibles are MySpace and planes are Facebook. So you're, it's social media, right? But it's just one's going to be the one that sticks around and has the big impact. And the other one's like, all right, I can see why that was kind of cool, but maybe there's a better way to do this. So uh, rest in peace forbidden. Um, as we move forward here, though, this uh, ZR2 that uh, our boy Bird gets assigned to, again, because keep in mind, they shot down this idea of him making this solo transatlantic flight because it was too dangerous. So they instead assign him to a dirigible. And uh, unfortunately, Bird winds up missing his train, and he is not on board the ZR2 on August 24th, 1921, uh, which is an important day to be on board that uh, dirigible because that's the day that it fucking explodes. Yeah. Oops. I was late to the meeting on 9-11. Well, he was late to the meeting for the dirigible. Well, he winds up losing some of his buddies on there, too. It kills 44 of the 49 crew members that were on board. A lot of them were Bird's friends. Bird will then serve as part of the recovery operations uh, and the effect of that disaster that it'll make on Bird uh, moving forward is that he's going to be he was already a careful guy. He was already a let's make sure everything's in order kind of a guy here. He had a little bit of a, a reckless streak. I mean, you don't you don't start exploring continents that no one's been to before with a, a little bit of, a, a, you know, piss and vinegar. But he's definitely a guy who's going to be let's do this, but let's do it safely kind of a thing. Like if you're going to fire me out of that cannon, let's make sure I have a helmet on. <laughs> yeah right. So, knee pads. He's, he's he's the the cautionary warning in front of every jackass episode. <laughs> That's right. The disclaimer. Did you did you sign a disclaimer waiver? <laughs> warning: the following stunts were performed by professionals. Yeah. Do not attempt. <laughs> Don't try this at home. Well, Dick House Productions made the jackass stuff. Dick Bird is the guy who's going to make history. So. <laughs> <laughs> This will, oh, I'm good that way, baby. Uh, <laughs> this sets the stage for his one of the first major accomplishments of his life. He's got a lot of great. If he dies in that dirigible, too, he's still considered to be a top notch officer. And his loss is a tragedy felt by the nation. However, he's about to become larger than life. 1926, Dick Bird and his famous Fokker. <laughs> Enunciate, Kevin. Enunciate. I'm sorry. Uh, Dick Bird Fokker. Um, it's no Dick Bird at, you know, future admirable, uh, admira, admiral. Jeez, man, you'd think that the Navy kid would get that right. But, uh, Dick Bird will become famous and synonymous, if you will, with something known as a Fokker airplane or a Fokker trimotor plane. That is, did you have any info on that one, dad? I know you're usually the, uh, the gearhead of the show. Uh, yeah. Fokker was a, uh, a Dutch, uh, airplane designer. Um, he made a name for himself in the in the First World War, um, but uh, this is now after the the Great War, after the First World War, and the uh, Fokker trimotor was a cutting edge technology that now we got three motors rather than a single engine plane um, that uh, 
this guy Fokker, his his company designed and built, and uh, it's it's a pretty powerful thing. And the plane is named uh, um, Bird gives this plane the name Josephine Ford, and it's named after the daughter of a of the major financier of this whole uh, operation that he's about to undertake. And Kev, I'll let you take uh, who that major financier might be because there's a bit of a loser reception there too. One well, step removed. Yeah, it's interesting that you would say that too because uh, this plane, like you said, is going to be named the uh, the Josephine Ford, right? If I have that right. Oh uh, yeah. So uh, Josephine Ford which is going to be named after the daughter of a major financier of the expedition, the Ford expedition, Ford expedition, folks I'm here all night. Um, <laughs> I'm not giving it to you, KP. I can't, <laughs> but that's where it came from. I'm not even, all I'm doing is pointing out. I'm literally, I'm Wait, highlighting. Are you serious? It's <laughs> <laughs> well, Ford will be synonymous with adventure because Etzel Ford, as in Henry Ford's son yeah. is the major financier of this new expedition. That he's going to start, uh, you know, setting the, the the precedent for. They're going to wind up doing something that's never been done before in the history of humankind. So, this is pretty cool here. This is again Henry Ford's son. Our loser section back to the Dodge Brothers versus Henry Ford. Please check that episode out because uh, uh, any money that we make off that particular episode, uh, money's going to go towards uh, research to help cure Nate Condit. Oh. So. <laughs> <laughs> we need a lot of money for his cure. <laughs> yeah, we won't say what it is he's suffering from because we just don't have the time. Uh, <laughs> oh but God. this idea here is that this trimotor plane is going to leave from Spitsbergen. Spitz, that's not in Bergen County. That's not next to Ridgewood, Dad. It's Spitsbergen, Norway. All right. So it's going to leave from Spitsbergen and return to its landing strip back in Spitsbergen. Uh, and it's going to do so in just under 16 hours. So that's a 16-hour yeah, flight. Yeah, getting that plane to Spitsbergen was no easy task either because uh, they had to load this uh, trimotor onto the ship and they took it as far north as they possibly could, getting trying to get as close to the North Pole as they possibly could while there was still open water. And once they arrive in Spitsbergen, the whole harbor is iced over. So it was a very precarious uh, offload to get that plane off the ship and onto onto land sliding it across the ice and everything else. So, uh, but without the plane, you're not going to be able to attempt a flight over the North Pole. So it's pretty important that you get the thing off the ship and onto, onto the land. But uh, Agree there, there to are. disagree on that. There we are in uh, Spitsbergen, Norway. Well, it's Spitsbergen, Norway. The flight's going to be about 16 hours here, if I recall correctly. And uh, only 13 minutes. This is one of those crazy things where it's like uh, you can do something for years or for hours or whatever, but it's really only a couple of minutes that winds up making the difference between whether or not you're, you know, memorable. And uh, <laughs> as I've proven on stage before, uh, if you can have uh, 13 minutes of success spread out across 16 hours, you too can be a successful stand up comic in the state of New Jersey. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, of the 13 minutes uh, um, in that 16 hours of this process of leaving from Spitsbergen and returning back to Norway, they're actually going to do something that's never been done before. Uh, Cahoons, I'm going to ask you real quick, buddy. Do you know a certain jolly old fella uh, that maybe uh, makes a, a trip around the world, if you will? Oh, Santa. <laughs> yeah. Where, where's that crazy guy live? On oh, the North Pole. You know, it's weird because we would say he lived in the North Pole because no one could ever prove you wrong because before Admiral Byrd and this historic flight, no one had ever flown over the North Pole. Are you serious? 
Yeah, again, this is aviation first, man. This is big time to be able to fly over the over the North Pole, to be the first to fly over the North Pole. So Never that, been done before. That's one of the uh, like one of the things he's known for is legitimately proving that Santa Claus doesn't exist. <laughs> well, it's interesting that he would say legitimately, right, Dad? He's on a yeah, he's on a mission from the government. Now, this is all <laughs> this is all privately funded too. This the, the U.S. government is not involved with this. This is all from funds that he has raised through uh, Etzel Ford and uh, uh, another guy that you might have heard of, John D. Rockefeller. You might have heard of him. Also, I do want to clarify something. Uh, For the children listening at home, Santa Claus does exist. Oh, absolutely. He is 100% real. Don't ever doubt it. You're good. Uh, I think Bird probably had a a Coca-Cola at the North Pole with Santa once, so they flew over there. He's the one that took that picture of Santa drinking the Coca-Cola. With the polar bear. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Bird arrives at the North Pole and then actually uh, employs Santa to help out the U.S. government starring Mel Gibson in (laughs) Fat Man. (laughs) So. No, it's uh, it's crazy, though. That 13 minutes is what uh, he hits a latitude known as farthest north. Now, longitude, a little code for you guys. If you don't know this about latitude and longitude, longitude is long. That goes north to south. Latitude is the one that goes east to west. So the final latitude, the farthest, most northern latitude that we have, that's where they're saying that they've been now. So Bird and his chief aviation pilot, a guy by the name of Floyd Bennett, they claim that during this flight, they spent 13 minutes over that farthest north and that they reached the North Pole. First time in human history that's ever been done. So imagine this is like landing on the moon. But I mean, how many years prior to actually us landing on the moon? You know, it's pretty wild to think about. But upon their return, after hearing that uh, Bird and Dick Bird and Floyd Bennett were greeted as national heroes, because holy shit, these guys just um, that is the. I mean, I can't even say going to Mars right now because the, you know, Elon Musk and Tesla, they're already talking about, they're saying that there's going to be colonies in, you know, the next 20 years or something like that. But imagine reaching, you know, something like Neptune or something like that. This is unheard of. It's never been done. Okay. It's like, you know, I I was about to say uh, the the Eagles winning a Super Bowl, but that uh, someone divided by zero and that happened a little while ago. (laughs) (laughs) They're the, uh, they're the astronauts of the day. I mean, all the, all the hype and, uh, uh, jumping up and down, hooray for us uh, with the astronauts landing on the moon or whatever in the space race. Uh, we're just a couple of years prior to that, that. We're trying to be the first to fly across the Atlantic or the first to go to the North Pole, the first to fly over the South Pole. So all of these aviation firsts are this is the time period that uh, we're talking about, that all these firsts are, are happening here in the in the uh, you know post-World War One, um, pre-World War Two era. Well, they're going to go ahead and get uh, a lot of accolades thrown on them. They are considered to be national heroes. They will receive plenty of awards, including something known as the Medal of Honor. So m- people might be asking at home, where is the losing here? And uh, by some accounts, uh, this North Pole thing that we're talking about, uh, it could have been faker than the moon landing, depending on what websites you want to read. Uh, I just made a, really? a, yeah, a little clever observation I made is uh, uh, people can't exactly prove this one. It gets wild. So. Uh, Bennett and Bennett, who was Bird's co-pilot, Floyd Bennett. Floyd Bennett. He dies less than two years later in a plane crash while attempting to save some downed pilots that had crashed somewhere in Greenland. So a fellow aviator and a friend of both Bird and Bennett by the name of Bernt Balchin. Bernt Balchin. He disputes that uh, those boys never made it to the North Pole at all. 
He claims that the speed and the charting didn't add up to it and also suggested that Bennett, who had been keeping a diary and stuff like that, because, I mean, obviously he was also becoming a national figure at this point. Mm -hmm. um, he had confessed to Bernd Benson privately, hey, we never really actually hit the North Pole. We just thought we did. We kind of got really close to it. So we said we did because we couldn't prove that we didn't. And that theory is actually going to gain even more traction. This is where Bird gets controversial. So we're going to talk about, is he a loser? No, not by this story. Is he a loser in memory? No, he's typically remembered as a great guy who pulled off some amazing things. It's what else comes up when you talk about his name. All right. If we talk about, uh, you know, 100 years from now, when uh, this podcast is still trying to get picked up by the History Channel, um, it's... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we're hoping that our name is not now synonymous with something as crazy as what we're going to start to hear about here. So uh, Bird, he his diary comes out in 1996. All right. It's 1996. It's finally been released to the public over here. And uh, his own diary reveals uh, that there's a couple of pages where you can see it's still legible if you look for it. But they were erased kind of chartings from uh, what's known as a sextant which is a, a, an aviation uh, charting thing. That's that weird kind of cool aeronautical yeah, compass. It's, it's to help identify the stars, right, or something like that? Or well, you can like track that. your progress across the globe by the position of the stars using the sextant. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's a Dick Bird sextant we're talking about, guys. Who no. released his diary? Like, who thought that was a good idea? Well, it was released to the public, so I think it would just be done by the family or something like that. That's kind of how I, I interpreted that one. Um and even early on when they first came back and, you know, they finally uh, uh, fl fly back into uh, uh, Spitsburg and uh, hooray, we did it. We got to the North Pole and we're back again. Um, it was interesting that a lot of the Americans are jumping up and down. Hooray for us. We, we were the first to uh, fly to the North Pole. But a lot of the European press were like, hey, uh, wait a minute here. You guys were only out there for 16 hours and you're flying in this plane. We know what the speed is. We know what the weather conditions were. It's a little quick to get from Spitsbergen to the North Pole and back again in 16 hours travel time. Even if you had to, even if the traffic lights were with you and <laughs> there was no traffic on 95, you're making pretty good time. <laughs> you're making pretty good time on that one. So, um, you know, there was. It was questionable, but um, the Americans are jumping up and down. These guys are awesome. Um, they come back to New York City. They have the ticker tape parade. Uh, Congress awards them the Medal of Honor to both uh, Bennett and to uh, and to uh, Bird. Uh, Bennett, I mean, so, some of the people in and around the New York uh, metropolitan area, it, it was Floyd Bennett Field, which was the first commercial uh airfield in the New York area was named after this guy, Floyd Bennett. So, I mean, you know, he's he's a big hero in his own right. Unfortunately, with uh, Bennett, that once they got back into the United States, they started touring around. Bennett uh, and this other guy that you uh, were mentioning, Kevin, um, started touring around the United States, uh, Balchin. Um, and they're flying the Josephine Ford around the United States on a goodwill tour. So it's a, it's a big media sensation too, that these guys went to the North pole and now they're heroes, they're medal of honor winners and, and everything else. But, um, that's where, uh, Balchin would, uh, became the co-pilot, um, for Bennett. And it was Bennett, Balchin has claimed that Bennett confessed to him that 
they didn't really reach the North Pole. Instead, they flew around in circles for a while and then, <laughs> then came back to uh, Spitsbergen. So, again, all of this, of course, gets totally folded into all kinds of conspiracy theories, too, because, you know, anytime somebody has a win, what's there's always going to be a segment of the population that are going to say, hey, wait a minute, those guys couldn't have done that. There's always going to be the naysayers. Um, we didn't really land anybody on the moon. That was just a, a Hollywood movie stunt. Those guys didn't really fly to the North Pole. That was just, you know, um, an erasure in somebody's logbook, and they, they wrote in different longitude and latitude um, re readings to make it seem like they got to the North Pole. So but anyhow. Um, and that was it, in the diary? Uh, well, the, the diary just had a couple of things that were erased, but you could still see what the original thing was. And so then there's uh, that pokes a couple holes in it. And then there's people who to this day will also defend Dick Bird to his death that uh, he did actually hit the North Pole because there was a, another thing like an anti-cyclone that could have affected some of the wind speeds and stuff like that. It's still that's a hot button debate, depending on who you're talking to. We're going to see why it gets even more um, hotly contested later proves, on here. That proves two things to me. One, his family didn't fucking read it before they published it because I would have just kind of omitted some details. Well, Kahuna, we're we're, in, we're almost in conspiracy land here, so I'm just going to answer all of your questions with, or did they? Or did they? <laughs> there you go. Right. And, and two, I mean, what were on the missing only... minutes of what were on the missing minutes of tape with uh, Richard Nixon? Uh, who knows? You know. <laughs> See, I mean, but at the same time, like, is it only a big deal because of all the accolades that these dudes got because they apparently reached it? Like, like truly, who? cares if you got to the north pole like it wasn't that big of a deal because no one had done it like had we had not explored that area or just no one had flown over it well the technology was relatively new so it wasn't that it wasn't going to happen it was just this is the first time it did happen so the kind of, uh, i'll say this it's kind of like somebody was trying to brag about how uh, obama was the first uh, president to be on uh, a podcast and I was like, well, that yeah, because that the eight years he was in office, that was like that's when podcasting took off. It'd be very weird if Calvin Coolidge was on a podcast, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, you don't have any uh, radar or any. You, know, you didn't have NORAD uh, watching Santa's flight on uh, Christmas Eve, tracking Santa around the world. Easy, um, dude. We, Liam listens to the show. All right, <laughs> Megan's Megan and Liam are listening at home, and he's just now. Now Liam's sitting there, probably gonna have a cigarette in his mouth, having his conspiracy moment. Like, what else is fake, Mom? Talk to me. This <laughs> <laughs> is the first time. Now, th this is true though, is that they do say that even if it was um, not actually something that they pulled off, that they at least pulled off eighty percent of that trip to the North Pole, which again, up to that time, is worthy. I mean, I don't know if it's worthy of, but it's definitely an accomplishment. And why are you going to sit there and correct? Like it, we always have to say, it. I always use the same example. Did I open for Colin Quinn? No. Did Colin Quinn and me hang out and talk a couple of times? Did he follow me on Twitter? Yes, he absolutely did. He likes talking to me. We took a great picture on stage together at a club and everybody just thinks that I opened for him. They think we're good buddies. We're not, but I don't have to correct you the same way that Admiral <laughs> Byrd does not have to correct Calvin Coolidge president who just gave him the medal of honor for going to the north pole we went 80 percent of the way there oh let me t let me give you 80 percent of this medal of honor then you fucking doink um <laughs> yeah we'll give you the medal but not the ribbon <laughs> well interestingly enough dad <laughs> interestingly enough if the flight had not reached the north pole as some people do expect that feat was then accomplished i shit you not just a few days later by an international crew that also included an american by the way that flew from Spitsbergen to Alaska. 
So just a couple of days later, somebody actually legit pulled it off where they could prove everything. So maybe they took better notes. Maybe they had better weather. Who knows? But boom, that thing actually did get uh, uh, you know done correctly there. But let's not get bogged down in the details, though, all right? Because our boy Bird, he's on to bigger and better things, Dad. All right. Yep. He's got his eyes set on winning something known as the Ortig Prize. Okay. The Ortig Prize, O-R-T-E-I-G, is a prize that was to be awarded to the first transatlantic flight from America to France. It had to be a solo flight as well. Okay. So Bird and Bennett, again, so these two guys who just pulled off this crazy feat with the North Pole, they're preparing to make history on their plane, which is aptly named the America. I mean, yeah, now let me just uh, jump in here, though. It didn't have to be a solo flight. It had to be a nonstop flight. Nonstop. Oh, OK. There, good, good there was a number. There was a number of different uh, teams that were trying to win this prize, the Ortig Prize, which was put up by uh, this guy by the name of Ortig, strangely enough. No and shit. The, and, the, and the prize was uh, 25K, uh, $25,000 for the first who was going to be able to fly nonstop between either France to the United States or United States to France, whichever which way you wanted to go. So there were some European teams that were trying to fly to um, the United States. And then there again, there was uh, some American teams that were trying to fly over to France. Um, uh, that 25K doesn't sound like a whole lot, but it would have been about uh, 300, just a, sh a shade under 400,000 uh, in today's money. Um, but a lot of the a lot of these teams spent a whole lot more money in the development of their planes and everything else in preparation than the actual prize money was worth. But it was, again, just a glory kind of a thing to be the first to fly nonstop across the Atlantic. And what better glory could you bring than by doing it in a plane named the America? All right. Yep. And a, a Fokker plane. Mind you, the American Fokker is going we're, to be uh, we're America's team, kid. <laughs> uh, well, the the Fokker plane here with uh, famed aeronaut Anthony Fokker at the controls with uh, Bennett and Bird on board will run a practice takeoff that unfortunately ends in a crash. And this crash injures Bird and severely injures Bennett. So keep in mind, Bennett's only Bennett's going to want he recovers from this injury, but he does wind up dying about a year or two, a year and a half later, I think. So um, Bird is hurt. Bennett's uh, very badly injured. And now this plane, the America, has to get repaired. And as it's being repaired and Bennett and Bird are recovering, some piece of shit in some goddamn plane called the Spirit of St. Louis, some guy by the name of Charles Lindbergh or something weird like that. Charlie. He goes ahead and he pulls off the flight. He wins the prize and becomes the most famous man in America. Yeah, I thought that was Christian Cortez. <laughs> <laughs> no, he came later. Yeah. Saboteur. That's why he was the American loser because he was in second place. <laughs> but, but, but Charlie Lindbergh, one. Charlie Lindbergh did it too, though, in a single engine plane where all these other teams are planning on doing it on these much bigger planes, uh, the tri motors and that type of thing. But old Charlie, he was under the attitude that, you know, lighter is better. And he did it by himself. So he's, he's flying uh, nonstop, which is about a 40 hour, 40 hours worth of flight time. So, uh, cats off to Charlie Lindbergh. That's why they called him Lucky Lind Lindy that he was able to pull that whole thing off. But, he, you know, he wins the prize and uh, huge accolades go to him. And we had a lose reception there, too. Do you know me, Kev? A little bit. Uh, one of our very early episodes, guys. Also known as the crime of the century. Check that bad boy out. You'll dig that one. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, Lindbergh goes ahead, pulls the carpet out right from underneath a boy's feet. 
Uh, and about a month later, though, to, uh, to, to their credit, Byrd will pull off that same flight himself on board the Repaired America. Their flight will include uh, official U.S. mail on board in order to demonstrate the use of such technology. So it's like, hey, you want to get that letter to Santa Claus? Let me get it to the guy who's actually been to where Santa Claus lives. All right. <laughs> so there's another first. That was the first transatlantic mail flight. So, again, uh, this is uh, – Guys, aviation please don't use gender gender uh, pronouns. Let's be a little bit more sensitive to that, please. All right. air, what air postage? I mean, what am I supposed to say it, to airmail? Uh, yeah, no, it, it, it's air them they. Okay, oh, air, air them, them they. they. Okay, all right. Good God, KP. Whatever works for you. And it's canceled before our big renewal. <laughs> well, you're right, though. This is the first time that it's being used correctly. And this successful flight will also earn the good Admiral Byrd more acclaim. And now he gets the distinguished flying cross, which is a pretty big deal. All right. And uh, within 20 years, just like they predicted, such flights will begin to connect the world on a timely basis that had never before been seen on Earth. This will be part of what Byrd will later refer to as a phenomenon known as the shrinking of the globe. Is the world getting smaller? No, but it's starting to seem that way, doesn't it? So it's been a year or so now, Dad, since Bird has made any headlines. So what's this old hummingbird? You know, you know who Bird reminds me of? He reminds me of a guy I know who retired from, uh, you know, maybe being a shop teacher and, uh, you know, doing a remodeling business. And now he just, you know, just works on a million different projects all around the, the house and stuff like that. Maybe helps out and volunteers for a Boy Scout camp. Uh, in the area. Maybe the guy helps out with building people's houses. Maybe Hank Sheetrock at his daughter's basement. Maybe he's uh, involved in the podcast with his son. The guy just can't seem to sit still, Dad. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> like laying on the beach and doing nothing is not exactly uh, for him a, a relaxing situation. Got ants in the pants. Got to do, got to move, got to gotta go, got to go, got to go. Yeah, got to remodel everything I see in front of me. My father, by the way, if you guys, I'm being serious. My father is good for property values like a gay couple moving in down the street. Okay, you know what I'm saying, Asbury Park? Oh, He's good that way. But uh, now here's the crazy part, though. Bird's got to do something, right? He's going nuts. He's already been to the North Pole. So, uh, Cahoons, what do you think would be the logical next step? Antarctica, baby. Yep. We've got Wait, are you serious? We've got it. That's it. South. That's it. It's the last place on earth that hasn't been really explored yet. So where are you going to go? Who are you going to call? Kurt Russell is. <laughs> so um, I shit you not, though. He's going to wind up going down to the Antarctica over here. We're going to discover the uh, not discover. but We're going to start to talk about the idea of the South Pole. Nobody. And the rock means nobody has made it to the South Pole at this time just yet. So yet again, Bird is setting his eye on going where no man has gone before. And doing it with some funding, of course, from his good friends of the Ford Motor Company, uh, his buddy Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And, of course, uh, where, would we, where would we be without the infamous John Rockefeller? So this uh, expedition will also be a success. And it results in a small little base that we're going to refer to as, uh, I thought this was a cute thing here, Little America. So you know, we talk about you go to New York, you go to Little Italy, or you go to Chinatown or anything like that. In Antarctica, you can go to Little America. So, <laughs> but they got tons of photography going on over there. There's also an Academy Award winning documentary for best cinema. This is where you would fall in line with this one, Cahoons. This would be you because you're a very talented guy. He's got uh, honest to God. Uh, he is an extremely talented guy. I've seen some of his work. He, uh, he is a natural with the camera in his hand. So imagine that uh, you're following me and my father on this weird journey and you're filming all of it. And you're going to go back and win the Academy Award for best documentary. 
this is back when documentaries were awesome. They didn't just come out in political seasons. All right. You know, this yeah. is like you could do some really cool stuff here. And he wins best cinematography. The guy who winds up covering this bird expedition to the Antarctic. Also going to freeze your ass, but that's all right. Well, you can't really fight that one, too. You know, it's uh, is temporary. Film is forever. <laughs> Ooh, I like that one. Let me quote you on that. Well, it's, there's also an interesting thing that he's going to bring in here. So, uh, Cahoons, you know this because you've met a couple of, of uh, Larry Burke's uh, other Eagle Scouts. All right. Okay. I'm uh, I'm one of them. Uh, as much as the Boy Scouts of America have asked me to disassociate myself. Really? Uh, Please stop talking about it. Yeah. My own Boy Scout <laughs> troop gave me a cease and desist. I don't understand. <laughs> but. Uh, no, you've met a couple of uh, Larry Burke's other Eagle Scouts, uh, and a very famous Eagle Scout is going to come in uh, line here. So, along with the uh, documentary crew that they're going to bring out there to just, you know to follow them around on this legendary expedition, uh, Bird also sits there and he notices we got to get the youth of today interested in this. So, what better way to do that than to find a 19-year-old Eagle Scout by the name of Paul Sipple, S-I-P-L-E? that he's going to try to get the youth of today and tomorrow interested in the idea of exploration by bringing a young 19-year-old kid with 53 merit badges. You need 21 to get Eagle, too, all right? You little overachieving asshole making us all look bad. <laughs> really? Uh, you know, I want to root for this kid, but there's a little part of me that just thinks he's Ned Flanders. Paddly <laughs> diddly. JP, so. don't hate <laughs> well, it, it wasn't hate. It was just like, oh, you got, you, you got. This is how I would handle it. Oh, look, look who's got time for more merit badges, huh? Uh, yeah, I did twenty-one and got out, buddy. All right, it's <laughs> <laughs> screw the palms. We don't need silver, bronze, or gold, right? Palms? What are you talking about, dude? I'm eighteen tomorrow. This shit ain't gonna fly. <laughs> I got the paperwork in on a Friday because uh, the uh, council headquarters was going to be closed Saturday and Sunday. Also true. <laughs> Shout out to uh, the good folks over at uh, Troop 104. Uh, uh, Scoutmaster Emeritus Larry Burke has uh, you know, been commandeered into being a podcast host now. Much there to you go. There but, you uh, go. Yeah, good old shout outs to uh, Charlie Curcio, who I think his sister just got married, and good old Chris Hollenbeck uh, as well. I, uh, my buddy Scott Brennan's also an Eagle Scout. True story. But uh, this Anyhow, back to the 19-year-old at the South Pole. Hey, man, uh, we landed that plane, buddy. All right. It's, okay. <laughs> the first flight to the South Pole and back is going to be conducted by Bird Balchin, who's the guy who's going to later wind up being the person who argues that Bird never actually hit the North Pole. So Balchin, Burnt Balchin, is going to be brought in uh, to kind of replace Bennett now because Bennett's since passed away in that tragic accident. Right. Which, by the way, that's all you need for the conspiracy theorists to go off is to sit there and be like, hmm, looks like the guy who says they never actually hit the North Pole wound up mysteriously dead. Hmm. <laughs> and by the way, I'm not against admitting conspiracy theories exist. We've proven a couple of them on this show. But again, there's not this is where Bird's memory is what's tainted. All right. Cause he himself, pretty great guy. I haven't found a thing that I consider him a loser for yet. It's where it's the, the hangarounds, you know what I mean? So this uh, first flight to the South pole has been conducted now. Uh, and it's pretty interesting. They're going to bring this legendary photographer with them by the name of Ashley McKinley. And McKinley is going to be one of the people that takes these photos and gives people an idea of, Holy shit, this is what the South pole area looks like. This is a real place. You know, a, insane geographical, uh, you know, just textures and stuff like that. I mean, it has to be mind blowing. But uh, the success of this first Antarctic voyage will result in Byrd now being officially made an admiral in the very same Navy he had been forced retired from years earlier. So that's a great little fuck you. Yeah. You know, and, and what was interesting, though, too, Kev, I mean, he he got out of the First World War with his uh, with his um, naval 
rank, if you will, and all the other uh, ranks after that were enacted by an act of Congress. It wasn't by the United States Navy. It was by Congress saying that, hey, you know what? It's about time we make this guy Admiral Byrd. So uh, that that had a, a little something to say, uh, or people had a little something to say about that later on, that he's really not a Navy Admiral. He was appointed an Admiral by the by Congress. But anyhow, that we're, we're digressing there a little bit. But um, uh, Malchin was uh, Bennett's co-pilot, and now that Bennett has died uh, from pneumonia after making a rescue of other guys that crashed in uh, up in Canada, I think Newfoundland or someplace. Um, he is now with Bird in uh, on the Antarctic expedition, and Little America is set up as their base of operations, which is pretty much on the edge of the ice shelf. And then anything else after that is going to have to be further inland. You can't help but think of John Carpenter's The Thing when we start talking about this, these other things, where the weather is a character in the movie almost, where it can get make things very difficult. Uh, oh, I so, love that reference. You have no idea. Yeah, same, <laughs> thing with, uh, same thing with 30 Days of Night or whatever it was, uh, that the vampire movie up there, where the weather's a character. So, again, the weather's going to be able to impact things over here because in 1934 um, – Bird, who is a, he actually barely survives his second trip to the Antarctic, and this is due to a faulty stove in his dwelling. Okay, so where he's staying on this, there's the outpost over in Little America, and then there's this very far out there outpost that Bird's manning by himself. Yeah, there was a second outpost that was uh, manned only by one guy, and that was by Bird himself, and that's like 120 miles from their base of operations, this Little America. So solitary and it's not just cold it's dark i mean you're in the land of uh the eternal darkness so Bird that, forgot that the thing can only t- possess uh, uh organic matter <laughs> <laughs> that's a and, reference even my father has no clue he's laughing no, he has no clue what you just said <laughs> uh it's uh but it, it's true he actually he's going to barely survive this uh, uh exposure to carbon monoxide poisoning because he's going to contact his men over at the base on Little America because they're starting to notice like, hey, these radio transmissions from him are a little bit weird. So, like, let's get out there and try to find him. They have two failed attempts to get out there to his outpost to rescue him. And finally, the third one is successful. Had they not gotten to him, he would have died of carbon monoxide poisoning from a faulty stove that was built inside the little station there. So this, of course, gets covered in several books and documentaries, more that wind up winning Academy Awards, by the way. Uh, about the legendary Admiral Byrd, including his own autobiography, all right, his own autobiography just titled Alone, which, I mean, that's like a good little fuck you to, uh, you know, the the guys who came and rescued. I mean, here's a story about me alone and, uh, you know, me alone by myself doing it all, just Byrd, you know, Bugs Bunny, first base, Bugs Bunny, second base. But Byrd will turn down an invite. This one I thought was a worthwhile footnote here, Dad. Bird will turn down an invite to lead another expedition just a few years later. So far, all of his expeditions have been funded by the Ford Company, Rockefeller, and with the uh, approval of the United States government. Okay, because again, the, he's the good Admiral, you know, Admiral Bird. He's doing quite well for us. He's making a making us look good on the international scene. This idea of American exceptionalism is kind of taken off. But this next one, uh, he winds up going over to uh, Germany, and uh, they're. You know, kind of pitching him an offer like, oh, uh, Admiral Byrd, why don't you think about taking, you know, maybe the Germans and we go over to Antarctica and, you know, we have a very good time. You know, have you tried our beer? It's very good. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, yeah, Antarctica is the last unexplored area on the the face of the earth. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people that are interested in that. And what are you going to do? You're going to stake a claim. It might be nothing but ice, but at the same time, hey, it's something and it's on on our planet. So there's a lot of people that are interested in uh, what's going on in Antarctica and all those films and stuff that they're sending back. That's the first time people have ever seen that, Um, you know, while it's in daylight that uh, it's in snow and ice and ice sheets and nothing but a whole lot of nothing. But uh, uh, there you go. Um, many people are interested in the Germans are, are deeply interested in this whole thing. And they have and, a, a great interest in uh, the, the field of aeronautics as well, too, because they were big on the Zeppelins. They were big on creating flight. I mean, the, the German culture. And by the way, Germany is considered one of the most modern countries around right now because they've recently unified pre-World War One. They've gone through their depression. They're starting to bounce things back. There's a little crazy guy with maybe a couple particular ideas about some people, but the trains are running on time. The infrastructure of the nation is getting healed up and they're starting to have this idea of, hey, man, our best days are ahead of us. OK. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I should say, uh, Admiral Byrd is saying, you know what, uh, guys, I, I think what you're doing is great over here. Don't know if I'm the right guy for the job here. Turns them down within less than a year of Byrd saying no to this expedition, which would have been a high water mark for achievement within you know, what we now know as Nazi Germany. Yeah, Hitler goes ahead and invades Poland, and uh, the world is soon at war again. So for a hot minute there, the same way that Lindbergh winds up getting a little bit too cozy with the Germans, they were definitely flirting with Bird. I mean, they were probably throwing all the blonde hair, blue-eyed chicks in the world at him to try to get him to sit there and say, hey, why don't you <laughs> play for our side a little bit? Have you seen Taylor Swift? <laughs> but he says no to them wisely because he realizes there's some tensions brewing. So he gets away from that one, which is cool. Um he does have to serve in World War II, mostly in an, an administrative role, because uh, you can't have a national hero like that, especially a guy who's physically impacted to a degree and also a little bit older. This is not a spring chicken anymore, Dad. Yeah. But uh, I mean, a guy was born in 1888. So we're now we're approaching the Second World War. So we're 1940. So we're, we're getting a little we're getting a little up there. But he is also very good on on the planning uh, operations kind of thing. Um if you're planning an expedition to the South Pole, uh, you better have your shit together to make sure that I think he had like 34, 34 men with him um, and of all varying degrees of uh, expertise. So this wasn't just a one man operation, although he was stationed by himself um, out 120 miles away from Little America. Um, you know, it, obviously, he had his stuff together. He was a good good planner, a good uh, guy to have for uh, making various, uh, picking out various airfields in the Pacific and everything else during the Second World War to, to uh, strategically plan out operations. Although he might not be the guy shooting at the enemy. He's the man behind the man behind the gun type of thing. He is a brilliant military mind and a guy who is accustomed to success. So I'm just glad he's on our side. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> But he does serve in World War II, like you were saying, and then he also returns again to the Antarctic with an all too familiar premise. Uh, it's kind of like an alien movie, right? That's how I'll, I'll try to liken this. So it's, uh, oh, we discovered this brand new thing. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, it, can it kill us? No. Can we use it to kill other people? That's kind of what we're starting to do here with the concept of Antarctica. So that's the all too familiar thing here. Bird will conclude, by the way, during one of these uh, initial, I think it was Operation High Jump. That's the conclusion of that. There's a famous interview with him. 
And he says that the days of America being geographically protected or considered uh, impenetrable just due to the fact that, hey, the war's all the way over there, man. All it's going to take is one country. And mind you, the Japanese did invade the Aleutian Islands. That's true. That happened. The, the, Jap- the Japanese military was coming for uh, in Alaska. They, they landed people over. That was a whole right. thing. So if we had lost that, Alaska would have then been the great way for them to launch an invasion into the West Coast. All right. And then that it could have been a completely different war if all of a sudden now there's such a thing as the United States home front. The closest the World War II ever came to actually hitting us was Pearl Harbor. So now Byrd is saying, well, all it's going to take is if whatever country gets out there and takes over these poles, if you play that game, you can now launch an attack on almost anywhere in the nation by plane. So it's all about who controls these poles, right? That's going to be a huge friggin' deal. Right. Strategically, now, that's huge. Absolutely. Oh, it makes some people nervous. They start thinking about stuff. There's actually international agreements by majority of the, the major nations on planet Earth to not um, uh create civilizations or colonize Antarctica just because of that. Cause whoever would hold sway over there would have a little bit too much power globally and could be unchecked. So as we're going to land this plane, pun intended here, we got to uh, finish up one or two points before we start to say why the guy's memory has been tainted in the public, uh, you know, common culture, if you will. So uh, bird, like I said, he makes that sad little uh, prediction that whoever controls the polls, you know, America's not out of it anymore. That war has become modern and, uh, we're way more at risk than we want to admit. So, yeah, we've already seen uh, with the Second World War, too, that air power or the Air Force is really what was credited with winning the war in the Pacific. That, you know, pre- previous to that, like you said, we had the Pacific Ocean to protect our one shore. We had the Atlantic Ocean to protect us on the other side. And everybody was thinking prior to the Second World War that with the big battleship, you're going to be able to uh, defend your nation. Well, that proved to be false with uh, a little happening on December the 7th, 41, when the Japanese led the attack on Pearl Harbor. And that battle was by the air, by taking planes off of a ship. It wasn't, no, the two ships never met one another. It was a, it was an air war. And the, the turning point of the Second World War in the Pacific was midway. And again, the two enemy ships never came in sight of one another. It was all by uh, airfare air warfare. So, um, you know, the, the thing of the future, and then we're dropping the atomic bomb in uh, 45. And that's another game changer type of a thing. And that, that came from where? From from above, from the air. So who's controlling the poles is strategically going to be um, real important in, in uh, world dominance. Well, uh, another thing, too, is that this Operation High Jump is the one that uh, he's really starting to get this new view of the world and how enemies can use those things against us here. Now it's a matter of national security. This is no longer like, hey, cool exploration we're doing. Let's get some photographers out there, you know, get a little National Geographic action going. Nope. Uh, now it's about like, all right, cool. How do they, If they control this, they can bomb us where? Holy shit. So it's getting a little bit more serious here. In fact, a lot of this is signed off by. Uh, at the time, the current Secretary of the Navy, James Forrestal, as in a guy who will have a ship named after him called the USS Forrestal, which has one of the biggest uh, disasters at sea in the history of the United States Navy, is the Forrestal. That's what majority of the United States Navy damage controlmen still train against is the idea of this jet fuel and rockets going off on board a ship and stuff like that. I mean, it's an ugly, ugly scenario. Little notice, too, by the way. Uh, one of the officers serving on board the USS Forrestal during this massive incident that happened, future Senator John McCain, 
All right. So, wow. Yeah, he served on board that ship. It was, uh, you know, it, it's still something very heavily studied by uh, damage control experts uh, for the U.S. military. So uh, he's going to sign off that endeavor, by the way. Operation uh, High Jump is a six to eight month endeavor. And uh, like we said, Dad, unfortunately, it, it is a lot like uh, an alien movie here because as soon as they figure out that, well, this might have a strategic value or be of some significant importance to national defense. So next uh, operation out there is going to be Operation Deep Freeze, which will take place in 1956. And in 1956, keep in mind, birds only figured out this Antarctica thing. It's like we said, it takes about 20 years or so for them to really figure out what the hell they're going to do with something from when it goes to a concept to just an everyday, you know, run of the mill fact of life. After 1956 to currently, the United States begins in 1956 and maintains to this day a military presence in the Antarctic. So 110% true here, which is where Bird's memory gets tainted a little bit. So this is going to fuel the conspiracy theorists who have beliefs of the idea of a flat earth. Antarctica doesn't really exist. It's not real. It's not there. You know, it's just a giant ice wall at the end of it. George R. R. Martin tried to give us clues in a book called Game of Thrones. Uh, but <laughs> this uh, Also, they maintain that it's a secret base. Uh, some people say that there are aliens that live in uh, Antarctica. There's other people that think that Antarctica is a portal into uh, the where the center of the earth, which is where the aliens are coming from. I shit you not. That's where the lizard people live, according to some of these, you know, uh, more far out theories, which, <laughs> by the way, I wish uh, Nick Franco, if you can hear this out there, stop sending me these conspiracy theories. All right. I don't want to know what you're talking about on your message boards. I'm kidding. Nick Franco does not do that. <laughs> but um but yeah, this is there's all sorts of crazy weird ones. The lizard people that live there have an agreement to give us some of their space age technology in exchange for us letting them be over there in the Antarctic. There's another conspiracy theory that Amy Schumer is actually just a baked potato and a wig. We can't prove or disprove any of these is what I'm trying to say, guys. So uh, Bird will return to the U.S. in 1956, Dad. And as usual, he just can't seem to sit around well, can he? No, nope. he's got to be doing something. What's he do this time? What's he get busy doing? Uh, I think he's what in fifty six. Nineteen fifty six. Bird's got he, he can't stick around. He's just got to. He, he's sitting there. Man, I, I'm just back from the Antarctic. It's my last time going over there. I mean, what the hell am I going to do now? I don't know. What's he going to do now? If he fucking dies. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing else left to do. Yeah, he's over now. It's nineteen fifty six. He dies on March eleventh. I'm sorry, 19, March eleventh, nineteen fifty seven. So he's back. Uh, from his final trip in 56 and in 57, he dies in his sleep, uh, suffering from a heart ailment. The world will mourn the loss of one of its great explorers while the conspiracy world goes batshit crazy. Hmm. Sudden death from bird bird. He said he saw the North pole, but did he, we don't know. See the way you framed it. It was, I know this isn't how reality works, but the way you framed it was literally just like he woke up and was like, you know what? I'm done. the great adventure of death (laughs) unexplored territory let's go find out what the other side is like let's step beyond hey during the spiritual age that was true there were certain people that would uh they would gas themselves in a hotel room uh and die in hopes of uh, being able to contact someone so they would say hey i'm going to kill myself tomorrow here's the magic word i'm going to tell you about so that was already something that they treaded into here now so bird's not too far off on that but the conspiracy one we were talking about we you could just take every good question kahuna was saying or asking earlier and you just end it with 
Or did they? Or did they? Right? So now it turns into one of these things where the conspiracy people, hmm, it looks like a bird will mysteriously die after the U.S. has built a base down in Antarctica. And he was good friends with the Ford Foundation, which had a tie to eugenics. And the Rockefellers, who own majority of the money in the country. And he's a member of the Freemasons, which goes all the way back to the Knights Templar. And it's just turning the freaking frogs gay. <laughs> So I'll say this, the conspiracy world, and it's a very fun world to get lost into if you really want to look into it. But you have to be able to to know how to do some research and talk to people and and understand what facts are being manipulated in order to try to sell a conspiracy. Because that's part of it is part of it is the facts. Part of it is what they can sell you and then spin to make it entertaining. There's legit conspiracies out there. We've talked about a couple of them on this very show. Please check out parts one and two of our Bay of Pigs one. We'll show you some of this shit. All right. It's there. There's real ones out there. But the conspiracy world, they have a couple of valid questions about these, the theory of there being holes in the North Pole that yeah. uh, some of the lizard portals. people come out of. Yeah. Portals to another world that uh, and that is another whole conspiracy theorist of, of the hollow earth hypothesis that uh, actually at the North Pole and the South Pole and perhaps the great pyramids in Egypt and other famous landmarks around the world are uh, portals into another world uh, a world inside of earth uh the hollow earth hypothesis and that's this goes back i mean to the 17th century people were um well lp that's dreaming this up that's referred to by another name do you remember agatha no it's called the land of the lost oh there you go there you go (laughs) all right but I mean, uh, this again, it goes back to the 17th century. Then there was a guy by the name of uh, Edmund Haley uh, as uh, AKA Haley's Comet that oh. uh, he, he was a big on this uh, inner earth or hollow earth hypothesis that really earth is nothing more than a bunch of shells. Like it's like the nesting uh, Easter egg inside the egg, inside the egg, inside the egg. And each one has its own little world. Uh, Don't call that the a- Russian doll thing. Cause then CNN will run with it for six months. <laughs> Okay, there you go, Brian Dalt. And then uh, in 1818 is another guy by the name of Sims, uh, and he comes up with this Sims hole, and he's the guy that's credited with uh, perhaps there's a portal at the North Pole or the South Pole or wherever. And then, uh, of course, Jules Verne comes around uh, with his journey to the center of the Earth, with the which was science fiction, or really was it? Because if you talk about Jules Verne with his 20,000 leagues under the sea, He's talking about a nuclear submarine. So, I mean, you know, what science fiction uh, today might be reality of tomorrow. But uh, anyhow, there's all kinds of uh, uh, speculation as to what Bird actually discovered or didn't discover. But I thought what was interesting, too, to have going back to when he set up that base camp at a little America and then took it upon himself to go out to that outer camp on his own. So he's locked up by himself like for four months in the dark and undergoes uh, carbon monoxide poisoning, which you know, that, that, that's not doing your brain cells any good either. So is he a little truck in did he ever, Arctic did he really way <laughs> truck in have another toke. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, did he ever fully recover from that? Eh, some people say not so much. So there's an interview with him. I think we have some audio of it. I don't know, man. Like the Antarctic, man, it's just like it's fucking cool out there, man. You guys gotta go see it yourself. You know what I mean? <laughs> LP, anything for the folks at home before we uh, uh, have to 
you know, grant the final wish and uh, set uh, our genie named Kahuna free? Yeah, I, 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 I would just, what? you know, this guy, this guy is, is cool. I mean, I was really struggling to come up with why are we calling Admiral Richard Byrd a loser? But uh, and, and it, it all goes back to these conspiracy theories. Or did he really make it to the North Pole? Did he really find these these holes or these portals to another world? Um, and well, we, we don't. Well, we bring him up on the scale of loserdom. He's like he's very low, and that happens. It's not like a good thing or a bad thing. It's just like just the circumstance of other people is kind of what ruined his le- ruined in quotation marks his legacy. Yeah, uh, an example too would be like so uh, the one that my buddy Chris Buck always brings up. Southern pride or having pride in like Southern culture and like that, that has been ruined by racists. Okay. Who are sitting there and trying to play. We're going back to the old Leonard Skinner was not all about that stuff. Leonard Skinner was, you know, doing Skinner stuff because they wanted to be a badass band that played with everybody. They had, there were black members of Leonard Skinner too, in the backing band. So this idea of like Skinner, man, you know, it's like the Confederacy and stuff. And it's like, no dude. So stop Googling that shit. You know, yeah. so when you search bird, bird will have a thing that'll pop up we're like oh cool this guy explored this and that lizard people hang on what's going on international child molestation this is weird oh god also i do want to point out something that lp said earlier that i was like oh it's american losers first t-shirt here we go and it was it was uh what science what is science fiction today is science tomorrow I love that. Yeah. Like that is, that's so, please, I want that on a shirt for The more you know. <laughs> the more you know. Perfect, man. Well, shit, LP, anything else you want to say to the people at home as we, uh, uh, send I think, them on I think that pretty much covers it. But any guy that to me is, has won the Congressional Medal of Honor, uh, Medal of Honor winner, Medal of Freedom, uh, um, Navy Cross, and all the other accolades that has bestowed upon him, whether it was by in battle or by act of Congress. Uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm hard pressed to really label him a, a hard and fast loser. We've got guys that certainly eclipse uh, Admiral Byrd in, in loserdom, <laughs> that, uh, a, mu- a much higher ranking. But uh, he was a fun guy to, to research and find out some of the other stuff. I mean, the guy's got a postage stamp. Uh, on him on his own for the America's explorers and everything else. So uh, a good guy, and he, he might rightly or wrongly gotten a bad rep on some of these conspiracy theories, but uh, uh, Admiral Byrd, American loser. He's pretty damn good, guys. Thank you so much for uh, joining the show on this one. Thank you to the Kahuna behind the ones and twos. Mike and Ming over to Shared Universe Podcast Studio. Take great care of us. My Dilf of a dad, who's going to be back in Jersey next week, folks. And my name is KP. I'll tell you what, I'll promote the one thing I got coming up here. I can't promote the one show because it's a secret show and people aren't allowed to come to it. Um, and then the other one is that, uh, unfortunately, it's a, it's going to, it's happening tomorrow night. So your boy's going to be back over at the stand on Frantic uh, with a bunch of great comics that are one of the best clubs in New York City. Very happy to be back on that show. Hopefully it's not my last time there and we'll see what happens. But Cahoons, thank you for your time on this one, buddy. Uh, LP, thank you for everything. Uh, listeners out there, we love you. Be uh, sure to check out uh, our Patreon for your end of the month episode. We've decided to cover, I'll tell you what, I won't say what it is. Let's just say our friend Sacagawea is going to help us through that episode. Another great explorer. Tie-in, baby. You see, there's there some things. But guys, uh, I love the two people I get to do the show with every week and I love you for listening. And that was... Good Admiral Byrd, American Loser. An American Loser the day I was born. 
Working loser the day I was born.